Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Shelby. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. again listeners both new and old we've seen that we've had a bit of a surge of listens and a pop-up of likes on our facebook which is cool as hell hell yeah thank you for being here you're all awesome the creepy burrito welcomes you the burrito family is growing (laughs) and i'm so proud but also we've received our first sad ass review (laughs) We got our first negative review. One uh, star. One I mean, star. <laughs> they did say that we are a decent yeah, podcast. Yeah, we're decent. So that's mm, all right. We're just annoying after a little bit and a little bit monotone. But I mean, if you listen to our first couple episodes. Which is what he said he listened to. Yeah. We're not going to lie, dude. You're uh, we, not wrong. You're not wrong. We are a little bit, a little bit nervous, a little bit starting out so i mean hopefully we're getting better so for those of you that stuck through it i'm so proud of you way to do it man (laughs) way to do it guys (laughs) for uh this this other guy though sorry (laughs) (laughs) he did say sorry so he did say sorry yeah he did in his title so apologetic i like it i apologize for life so it's okay it's okay man Not everybody likes burritos. No. But if you don't, you're wrong. (laughs) Now, most recently, we did cover uh, back-to-back true crime cases, which we love. And don't worry, because we have more coming up real soon. Mm. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Wink, wink. (laughs) But we do like to keep things interesting here at the Creepy Burrito and change it up a bit. So today, I'll be taking you on a journey. But before we head out, where are you? Are your doors locked? Did you check the back seat? Glance over your shoulder. Are you alone? Are you sure? You never know who might be listening. They arrive unannounced. Sometimes just one, sometimes a group of two or three. They'll appear while you're alone, isolated from everyone else. They are expressionless, cold, always dressed in black. They will threaten you and harass you, scare you into submission. They are the men in black. Here are the men in black. Here they come. (laughs) Galaxy Defenders. Okay. I had to do it. Cut that off before we get to (laughs) Will Smith is going to come for us. He's going to get us. He's going to nebulizer neuralizer (laughs) now most people have heard of the men in black from the movie franchise but the real men in black are a far cry from what hollywood has portrayed the men in black are men sometimes women dressed in all black suits who claim to be quasi-government agents who unlike tommy lee jones and will smith harass threaten or assassinate witnesses or researchers of strange paranormal phenomena. They dress in all black suits and they're frequently seen with sunglasses, like (laughs) Ray-Bans, which also Will Smith says in his song. (laughs) Their clothes are rather loose fitting because they themselves are very thin. Sometimes it's reported that they'll even wear gloves. The men wear black bowler hats And the women, which in my opinion is even creepier, will wear oversized, ill-fitted wigs. Like, almost like Sia wigs, like with the bangs like kind of coming down over your eyes and like the, it's just like a bob that's like just not, it's just bad. It's just ill-fitted. Like that's the only way I can describe it. But the theory behind that is, is that they're obviously trying to hide something, mm-hmm. most specifically their eyes. Witnesses who have seen the men or women in black say that their eyes were larger than normal, 
that their sunglasses didn't cover them completely, that like a bit of either the top or the bottom of their eye could still be seen even with the sunglasses on. That's unsettling. So these MIBs are reportedly very pale, almost gray, and their skin is very tauntly stretched, almost plasticky looking. Mm. And under further inspection, people have claimed that they have no hair, no eyebrows, or eyelashes. They are emotionless when they talk, almost mechanical. They never refer to each other by name, only numbers, like number nine or number seven. Another common consistency about these men in black is that their vehicle of choice is some sort of black sedan, like a Cadillac or a Ford. There are also talks of mind control, telepathy, and loss of time, all when dealing with the men in black. Now, as I mentioned, these men in black seem to target witnesses or researchers of strange paranormal phenomena. They will arrive when there have been either UFO sightings or if someone's going public with a story or if they're on the verge of a breakthrough of research. There have been many reports of encounters like this, but I'm gonna go through some of the most well-known and popular accounts and then talk about what some of the conspiracy theories are behind these guys. So the most well-known story of the Men in Black is the story from Shane Sovar, a hotel manager near Niagara Falls in Canada. Back on October 14th, 2008, Shane and a hotel security guard that was working that night reported seeing a large triangular UFO outside of the hotel. A few weeks later, two unidentified men in black arrived at the hotel. They terrorized the hotel staff and demanded to know where Shane Sovar and the hotel security guard was. Luckily, neither of them were there that day, and finally, after repeated attempts staff made telling the men in black this information, they simply left. When Shane arrived back at the hotel the next day, the staff told him of this encounter. The witnesses described the men as tall, with black suits, black hats, identical faces, and extremely pale skin. No eyebrows, no eyelashes, and abnormally large eyes. Another staff worker claimed, when speaking to the men, she felt almost as if the men knew what she was thinking. Skeptical, he went to view the hotel security camera footage, and sure enough, the camera caught two men on tape walking through the hotel lobby. And this footage is available on YouTube. Like you can actually watch it. Now, when you watch this video, it's definitely eerie. Like these men are dressed exactly the same. They do look like businessmen, but it's strange that their appearance looks like how a businessman would dress from like the 1950s or the 1960s. Also, when they enter the lobby, they pass next to a hotel staff member, and you can see for comparison how large both of these men are compared to this other man. Now, we were never told what hotel this occurs at, which is not uncommon due to different corporations and businesses wanting to keep their names out of stories like this, you know, because it might damage their reputation. But if you look up Shane Sovar's profile on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. It says that between 1992 and 2009, he was the manager of the Sheridan Fallsview Hotel and Conference Center in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Oh. And sidebar, if you do look this up, the first profile that you come to, it's like a fake profile or something. There's no picture or seemingly any other information on it. So you have to click on the profile that says he's like currently a scheduling manager and then it'll come up. You'll be able to like look through his history and actually see that during the time that he, that this account says it that it is, he was a hotel manager. So could this be real footage? Or is it just guys dressed in these oversized suits that are exactly the same size walking into hotels asking for a specific person's name and then leaving and never coming back? <laughs> never coming back. It's hard to say. To determine our thoughts on it, let's look at a history of these men in black. So the first time we ever see the men in black come on the scene is actually over 70 years ago. On June 21st, 1947, 
a man named Harold Dahl was on a conservation mission on the Pungent Sound, which is an inlet of the Pacific Ocean in the state of Washington. It's just south of Seattle. Harold and two other men, his son and their dog, were aboard a boat gathering logs near the eastern shore of Murray Island. And according to Harold, around 2 p.m., he saw six donut-shaped objects, about 100 feet in diameter, appear in the sky about a half a mile above his boat. He said that he was able to make out round porthole-looking windows and even an observation deck. And suddenly, one of the hovering crafts began to descend closer to him. And when it got about 500 feet above the water, it began hovering again. And before long, one of the portholes opened, and the aircraft began dumping what looked like a white metallic lava into the water. That's terrifying. <laughs> Most debris went straight into the water, but unfortunately, some stray pieces came too close to Harold and hit his boat. His son and his dog were both hit by a piece of debris. The debris that fell on Harold's son hit his arm and on contact burnt his skin and <gasps> left a welt. And unfortunately, the piece that hit their dog killed him on impact. Oh no. Harold says that at this point, he remembered he had a camera on the boat and started snapping pictures of the aircrafts. Eventually, the aircraft finished dumping the debris into the harbor and ascended back up to meet the other aircrafts, where they then quickly disappeared into the sky. Harold returned to shore to rush his son to the hospital, but before heading there, he reported the incident to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. Fred reports that he was skeptical at first, but curiosity got the better of him and he made his way to the Murray Shore where Harold said all this happened, with the intentions of collecting any evidence that he could find. Once he arrived, he began collecting samples, but before long, another aircraft appeared. The aircraft hovered in the sky, almost as if it were watching Fred. Unsettled, Fred quickly made his way back to shore and did not mention his own experience to anyone. The following morning, Harold received a knock on his front door. He opened it to find a man dressed in an all-black suit standing there. The man suggested that they go to breakfast together, and they end up at this uh, local diner where the man in the black suit was able to recount in extraordinary detail what Harold had seen the night before, almost as if he were there himself. What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, the man said. He then said Harold was not to speak of this incident, and if he did, bad things would happen to people around him, like his son. If you tell anyone that we were littering in the ocean with <laughs> our big metallic lava, we'll hunt you down. We're gonna get you. We gonna get you. Harold was scared to say the least and agreed not to say anything further to anyone else. The man in black left never to be seen again. Shortly after Harold returned home, his supervisor Fred finally appeared, affirming Harold's story by telling him that he had also seen the crafts last night. And after some convincing by Fred, Harold finally agreed to go public with these claims, even giving Fred his camera from the night before to get the pictures developed. The first call that they made was to Ray Palmer, who was a publisher out in Chicago, Illinois. Harold and Fred put together an evidence package and included some of the debris that they saved and a written statement about the encounter. They did want to include the pictures that Harold took on his camera, but upon receiving the developed photos, they were all damaged. Later, the photos were examined and it was determined that they showed the same type of damage as film exposed to high levels of radiation. When Ray Palmer received the package, he reached out almost immediately to a man called Kenneth Arnold. Kenneth Arnold was an American aviator and a businessman, and even better known for making what is generally considered the first widely reported UFO sighting in the United States. He claimed to have seen nine unusual objects flying in tandem while he himself was flying near Mount Rainer, Washington on June 24th, 1947. Kenneth originally described the object's shape as 
flat like a pan. <laughs> or something like a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of convex triangle in the rear. Wait, what? <laughs> or simply described it as saucer-like. And from this, the press quickly coined the new term flying saucer and continued to use it to describe UFOs for many years. I feel that. Fun fact. Now, Kenneth and Ray were working collectively and were putting together research on these UFOs and similar phenomenon. Since Kenneth was in Washington State himself, Ray asked him if he could just pop over and investigate Harold and Fred's claims. So soon after, Kenneth arrived and made his way to Murray Island to collect samples from the shore and also from the boat that Harold claimed that he was in. He also conducted his own interviews with both Harold and Fred. And in July of 1947, two Army A-2 intelligence specialists, Captain Lee Davidson and First Lieutenant Frank Brown, came to investigate these claims as well. They told Harold and Fred that they believed their story and asked for a meeting with them. They all met and they spoke together for several hours. They collected some of the debris from the encounter. And after meeting, Captain Davidson and Lieutenant Brown returned to their B-25 bomber. And 20 minutes after takeoff, the plane crashed <gasps> into the sea near Centralia, Washington. Oh no, I just got chills. That was terrible. Yep, two other men on this plane actually were able to escape and deploy parachutes, but unfortunately, before Captain Davison and Lieutenant Brown were able to do the same, a wing broke off of the plane, sending it into a spin, and both men were trapped inside and killed. Officially, the crash was deemed a terrible accident, and that one of the aircraft's engines caught on fire, causing the crash, but... Witnesses to the crash report hearing anti-aircraft guns shooting the plane down. So. So yikes. <laughs> yikes. And this is why I refuse to research this topic. You're the brave one. I'm so proud of you, Renee. <laughs> Later that summer, another Air Force official working on the case with the FBI investigators concluded that Harold and Fred made up the entire encounter and all the evidence that they had was fake. However, people theorized that both Harold and Fred were so shaken up by what had happened that they recanted the entire story, claiming that it was a hoax in order to try and avoid another fatal accident or run in with the Men in Black. This is the first time we ever hear about the Men in Black, which was a name eventually dubbed to them from the public. But heading into the 50s, we start to see them visiting a little more frequently. There was a man named Albert Bender, he was a ufologist in 1952. Uh, he actually created the International Flying Saucer Bureau, otherwise known as the IFSB, which is the first major civilian UFO club in the world. Like this was worldwide. And the IFSB published a magazine called Space Review. And the magazine's purpose was to publish information on these flying saucers and report on different witness reports and accounts. Initially, the magazine had great success. And in the summer of 1953, Albert believed that he finally found the truth to UFOs and the whole cover-up conspiracy. He had planned to reveal his findings in the October issue of Space Review, but before he could, Albert was visited by three men dressed in black. Albert refers to these men as the silencers, and they communicated with him telepathically. Oh, that's terrifying. Albert claims that they told him that they had read an unpublished copy of this magazine, and they threatened him to stop publishing and get rid of any information or evidence that he had on alien encounters. These men scared Albert enough that he not only didn't publish this October issue, but he shut down the entire magazine and left a warning stating, we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. And eventually he even dissolved the IFSB. Ooh. After the man left, Albert became ill and didn't eat for three days. Afterwards, he suffered frequent headaches for the rest of his life, and many people who knew him claimed that he was a changed man after this encounter. His co-workers reported his work became incoherent rambles, 
almost unreadable and that he seemed to live his life in constant anxiety and terror. But they didn't know why, because Albert never talked about this encounter for nine years. Oh. So he kept, he closed down his magazine, dissolved the IFSB, and no one knew why. So everyone probably thought he was going crazy. Right. So it wasn't until 1962 that Albert wrote the book Flying Saucers and the Three Men to tell his own story. And in this book, he wrote that he believes the men in black may have been extraterrestrials themselves. And he claimed to have never seen these men again, but received mysterious phone calls with nobody on the other end up until the end of his life in 2002. His experience formed the legend and the conspiracy of what we know today as the men in black. Once this information was published, it encouraged more and more people to come forth with their own encounters and their own sightings of the men in black. The next time we see a widely publicized encounter like this is in 1967. Robert Richardson was driving around Toledo, Ohio at night. He was coming around a bend and a strange object was blocking the road. Unable to stop the car in time, he hit it. And he got out of the car to inspect the damage and to see if anything was stuck like underneath his car, but there was nothing. Whatever he hit vanished. Robert informed police and they had accompanied him to the scene, but they could only find his skid marks as evidence, nothing else. However, in a later visit, Robert claims that he found a small lump of lightweight metal, which might have come from the UFO. Robert wasn't sure what to do with what he found, so he sent the metal to the APRO, which is the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Three days later, at 11 p.m., Robert said two men wearing black suits black hats and black glasses, driving a black 1953 Cadillac, appeared at his residence and knocked on his door. The men did not show him any identification and Richardson didn't ask for any. He said that their suits seemed enough to imply that they were of some sort of government importance. They then began to interrogate Robert about his car crash. They were not unfriendly, They gave no warnings, no cryptic messages. They just asked questions, then simply left. It was not until the two men were gone that Robert realized that this meeting was a little suspicious. He had told nobody about his experience other than his wife, the police, and the researchers at APRO. A week later, Robert received a second visit from two different men both dressed in black suits, black hats, black glasses, but this time in an all-black 1967 Dodge. This time, Robert said these men had a darker complexion, almost olive gray skin. He said one of them spoke perfect English and the second had an accent, and he felt as if there was something vaguely foreign about both of them. At first, they seemed to be trying to persuade him that he had neither seen nor hit anything at all. But when Robert continued to assure the men that he did, they then aggressively asked him to hand over the medal that he found. When Robert told them that he had sent it to be analyzed, they had threatened to harm his wife if he did not retrieve the medal and hand it over. So Robert agreed to do so and never heard from the agents again. The next encounter with the Men in Black is eerier than the last. Dr. Herbert Hopkins was a doctor and a hypnotist, and he was an acting consult on the alleged UFO teleportation case in the state of Maine. While home alone one night in September of 1976, he received a phone call from someone claiming to be the vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, asking if he might visit Dr. Hopkins that evening to discuss certain details of the case. Dr. Hopkins agreed and went to the back door to flip the outside light on when he noticed a man already climbing the porch steps. Oh no. Hopkins later commented, I saw no car, and even if he did have a car, 
he could not have possibly gotten to my house that quickly from any phone. Because you figure this is back in yeah. 1960s. You don't have cell phones. Yeah, this is 1976. Uh, you don't have I cell got, phones. I got chills. I hate this. I hate so, this so much. <laughs> the man was dressed in a black suit with a black hat, tie, and shoes, and a white shirt. The man was extremely pale, and when he took off his hat, he revealed himself as completely hairless. The man sat motionless, and when he spoke, his voice was mechanical, almost robotic. Dr. Hopkins noted that it was off-putting how bright red the man's lips were, mm. and that in the course of their conversation, the man in black must have happened to brush his lips because they looked smeared, and the man's gray suede gloves were stained with what looked to be lipstick. Oh, that's okay. After hmm. the bizarre visitor was finished questioning him about the UFO case, the visit got even more strange. The man said that inside Hopkins' pocket were two coins and asked him to take one out. Hopkins complied and held a penny in the palm of his hand. The man told Dr. Hopkins to watch the coin very closely. After a few moments, the copper coin turned silver and then appeared to be going in and out of focus. It then began to take on a blue color and started to fade and eventually disappeared altogether. The man then informed Hopkins that the coin would never be seen on this plane again and gently suggested that Hopkins destroy any material that he had related to the UFO case. Mm, I mean, is it aliens or is it acid? Did he give him acid? <laughs> the man then left Dr. Hopkins' house, quickly rounded the corner, and disappeared into a bright light. While he never saw the man again, he had repeated phone troubles thereafter, with the phone company even saying it seemed like his line had been tampered with. After the man left, Dr. Hopkins, extremely shaken by the encounter, followed the advice of the man and burned all of the files he had related to the case. There also have been reports of these men in black overseas as well. In 1979, a cryptozoologist named Frederick Holliday was on the Loch Ness searching for evidence of its famed monster. Mm. During his search, he noticed a man in black standing motionless up on a hill. And at first he wasn't surprised because it was a tourist attraction and he was used to seeing people out. But he started to seem a little unnerved when he realized the man seemed to be watching him instead. Frederick said the man continued to stare directly at him for several minutes, and during that time he was overcome with this terrible feeling of dread and maliciousness. Frederick thought about snapping a picture of the man, but before he was able to, a noise from the shore startled him, and when Frederick looked away for only a moment, the mysterious man was gone. And exactly a year later, Frederick was back out on the lake continuing his research, and unfortunately suffered a heart attack. Frederick claims that as he was being carried out, they passed the exact spot where he saw the man a year ago and then was overcome with the same feeling of dread and maliciousness. And this isn't the only time where the men in black were involved in cryptids. If you remember a few episodes back, we covered the Mothman, where many witnesses after seeing the Mothman would go to the authorities or the press to tell their story and then claimed that shortly after doing so, the men in black showed up and threatened them that if they continued to talk about what they saw, bad things would happen. There are also stories of these men in black being able to break the laws of physics. In 1980, Professor Peter Rosevich was spending a late night in the campus library. He was reading a book that a coworker had recommended that just so happened to be about UFOs. A few moments after, Peter noticed that a man was sitting across from him. Peter looked up from his book and almost immediately, the man who was very thin and dressed in all black started questioning him about the contents of his book. Speaking in a slight accent, he asked Peter if he'd ever seen a UFO before or if he was merely just interested in the topic. 
when Peter responded that he actually wasn't interested in the subject, but just enjoyed reading the stories about them, the man seemed to get angry and shouted, how could you be so uninterested in the most important facts of the century? But still, Peter maintained that this really wasn't his thing and he was just reading it based off of a recommendation. Seemingly satisfied, the man in black stood up as if mechanically lifted and said gently, go well in your purpose and left. What does that mean, sir? (laughs) A while later, Peter grew tired and got up to stretch his legs. As he was walking around, he noticed that he was completely alone, despite the fact that only an hour beforehand, the place was filled with people. Feeling the urge to leave the library, Peter returned to his seat and started gathering his things. By the time he left, everyone was back in the library almost as if Peter was sucked into a different dimension or timeline, and then spit back out where he belonged. Oh no. Now there are some other stories that are credible than others and more believable even, but most encounters end with, and then I got rid of all the evidence I had in fear, or then the evidence was destroyed, or simply they just had no evidence at all. This obviously makes it a little harder to believe who's telling the truth and who isn't, and gives a lot of criticism to the entire community, which does make sense to an extent. For Harold Dahl being so scared of the men in black and worried about what could happen to his son, didn't seem to take too much convincing by his supervisor, Fred Chrisman, to go public. And the two other men that were aboard the boat with Harold when this encounter took place, never publicly admitted to seeing anything that night. Is it because they didn't see anything? Or is it because that they were worried about being ridiculed? Or is it because the men in black visited them too and scared them into silence? Another thing I'd like to mention too is that when Kenneth Arnold showed up to interview Harold and Fred, Harold claimed that his son disappeared and that he was just gone, vanished. And you would think that, you know, he would be more concerned with finding his son than trying to get the word out about his story. And then turns out later that summer, Harold's son was actually found a few towns over waiting tables in a restaurant. And once he was found, he claimed that he had no memory of how he got there. Which, okay, but like, why didn't you just go home? Um, I don't know, like you suddenly wake up and realize like you're in a completely different town away from your friends and your family and your first idea is to start waiting tables and to live in this town. To me, it sounds like the father and the son were in on it Mm -hmm. and to further, you know, add fuel to their story, the son moved a few towns over and then the father claimed that he disappeared to like make it sound more believable. Or like maybe the kid just ran away and used his father's story as like, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I was abducted and I don't know how I got here, you know, like a runaway kid would. But it's uh, pretty coincidental too that the reported encounter happened a few days prior to Kenneth Arnold's. So Kenneth Arnold was the dude who saw the nine flying things while he was flying. The whole fleet in the sky. Yes. So Harold and Fred, their account was on June 21st, 1947. And Kenneth was on June 24th, 1947. But Fred and Harold didn't contact Ray Palmer about their experience until after Kenneth went public with his. Oh, I see what you're saying Right, so, yeah, and then speaking of Ray Palmer, he was a publisher, and it's interesting to think that Harold and Fred would go to a publisher with their story rather than the local media. Yeah. And furthermore, Ray Palmer was a publisher out in Chicago, Illinois. Harold and Fred were from Washington State which is like the furthest away west that you can get from Chicago. So how could Harold and Fred hear about this man? And then track him down. Like, how would they find him? Because, like, you don't have the internet. Unless (laughs) they were already exposed to his magazine, which wrote about similar experiences. Mm. Mm -hmm. So maybe they got the idea to create a story to sell for cash and contacted the magazine. Maybe that was all the other witnesses had in mind too, just making up a story to sell for profit. Speaking of magazines, 
Most critics love to point out that Albert Bender, in his magazine Space Review, was actually losing a lot of money and was on the verge of collapsing. Could his story about the men in black be a ploy for magazine sales? Or was it a way for him to keep from admitting defeat or failure? Shutting down the magazine without saying it was because of lack of business, but because he was fearful of the men in black. Mm -hmm. So that poses the question, what did Kenneth Arnold have to gain from his reporting? He was a pretty regular guy, and he was a ex very experienced pilot for many years prior to this sighting, with most of his flying hours actually logged working for a search and rescue. After his UFO sightings, Arnold actually became a minor celebrity, conducting many interviews, wrote his own book, and even wrote a few magazine articles about his UFO sighting and subsequent research. But by the late 1960s, Arnold actually got tired of his notoriety and UFOs in general, and eventually started to decline all interviews and stop talking about the subject. Could he have been contacted by the men in black and threatened to keep quiet? Or simply did he just get tired of his lack of privacy and the constant annoyance of being in the public eye? This is the most common reasoning skeptics use to disprove UFO witness accounts that all they are are just small town people looking for fame or money with nothing to lose. But what if there is someone who already has that fame, money, with everything to lose? Oh no. That person is one of my favorite humans ever to walk this earth, and I love him so much. Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. That's right. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, actor, comedian, Saturday Night alumni, and star of movies such as Ghostbusters, Blues Brothers, and Coneheads. But little known fact about him is that he is a major sci-fi enthusiast and has been fascinated with UFOs since 1952. I legit didn't know this. Mm -hmm. I am like shook it. Right. So <laughs> when he he became obsessed with UFOs when he saw a photograph of mysterious lights over Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Dan Aykroyd even claims that back in the 1980s, he himself had an encounter firsthand in upstate New York. He claims that he awoke in the middle of the night in a panic and told his wife, they're calling me, I want to go outside. And when he went outside, he saw a pink spiral over the lake and afterwards spoke to some of the others who saw the spiral and he learned that they too also felt a similar desire to go outside and look at the light. Mm, that's... Uh, unnerving. Mm -hmm. So this encounter proved to Aykroyd that alien and alien-like technology was real. And he claims that since that night, he's seen in total four UFOs. Now Aykroyd believes that the US government is well aware of the alien UFOs that come to Earth from time to time, but cover up their existence as part of a power grab. That if the government were to release information about an alien race, that was capable of traveling to our planet, that the public would stop looking to the government for guidance and instead turn to the alien race. They keep this information confidential in fear of losing its power and control over people. Hmm. To quote Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> I, love, I love this so much. Same. I believe there are probably many species coming and going and the Air Force is very interested, but they can't come out and say, because then you're gonna go, well, wait a minute, that cop on the street, the president, you don't got the power, they've got the power. You'd have a complete breakdown of society. Dan Aykroyd has absolutely no problem with putting his name out there and openly talking about his beliefs. So much so that in 2002, he began producing a television series called Out There, which was an in-depth documentary of his life's work researching UFOs. However, this documentary brought him his closest experience with the extraterrestrial yet. Well, what happened was we, we, we sold the show to, uh, to Sci-Fi Channel and uh, it was called Out There and I basically interviewed all of the people that I admired uh, in various fields of study like uh, Colin Andrews from the Crop Circle Movement, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, the expert on cattle mutilations, John Mack, 
I talked to him, I talked to the Allagash guys who were taken in the canoe on that trip in Pennsylvania. I, um, I mean, and I, the last show, the last show we did, I had both Bassett, who uh, has the, the UFO time clock, and then Greer. Both Bassett and Greer were there. They were my two guests for the day. Well, the show was canceled that afternoon. And um, I was outside, in, before I knew it was canceled, in between the interviews. And uh, I was outside, and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to be, appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked up, I was outside having a cigarette, the phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Brittany, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back, and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate, and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy. And I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there, and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat. And he stood in the street on, um, on 42nd Street, it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. And he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd love for the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. And whether this was like a warning to me because the guy cut out of the backseat gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And... Uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it was just this fast. It was, oh, hi, Brittany, sure. Oh, of course, I'd love to. God gives me a dirty look. Oh, well, sure, car gone. That's what happened. And uh, then two hours later, uh, we were told we were not to continue taping, and the show was canceled, and none of them would air. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Was that, uh, was that an MIB experience? You know, black helicopters, uh, you know, military... Uh, abductions that happen sometimes people are taken and they talk about then being visited by you know military personnel and re debriefed about their abduction was it you know was it a technology associated with some of these beings that are visiting that wanted to warn me off or that wanted to give me verification that I was on the right track I don't know but I do know I, I did I did turn back a second later and I you know it takes so long for an automobile accelerating from zero to 40 miles an hour to reach the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street going past me and then pulling a U-turn and going out towards Times Square, I would have seen that car. And I looked around. I mean, I was looking for that then. It was gone. So, um, I, I don't know. The tapes exist. I have them. We're going to try to repackage them. We might put them out on DVD. So, as Ackroyd described, he may or may not have had his own MIB experience. Now, it is rather odd that the Sci-Fi Channel had gave him the green light for the show, and then, mysteriously, the show was never to air. The timing is even more suspicious that he was about to interview Stephen Greer, who is from the Disclosure Project, mm -hmm. which his project was to entice Congress to hold open, secrecy-free hearings on extraterrestrial activity on Earth and develop legislation to allow for peaceful exploration of space. Allegedly, during his interview, he was to disclose a bunch of insider information on UFO activity and eyewitness testimony. The show itself was also canceled without any reason, which shows, of course, they get canceled in Hollywood all the time, but they're usually given a reason for why. And you would think that especially with such a notable star like Dan Aykroyd producing it, he would have a reason or at least be able to find out yeah, what the reason what happened. was. Yeah. Up until then, every UFO witness was lacking concrete proof or evidence. So it makes you wonder if maybe Greer did have something concrete and either the government or whoever the MIBs are working for were worried about it getting out. So... This brings me to the main theories about who exactly these MIBs are. Mm. So theory number one. Hit me with it. The men in black are their own society that are on Earth controlling our planet from behind the scenes. Now, this theory is actually pretty similar to the Men in Black movie franchise. Yeah. That there's a branch of government that's so secret that the government doesn't even know it exists. 
that their purpose is to walk the line between human and alien existence protecting Earth. This theory suggests that the aliens live among us and the men in black seek or hunt or watch over these aliens that may pose a threat to the planet. Now, there's a story that I remember of this psychic named uh, Ingo Swan, and he claimed to be viewing extraterrestrial activity remotely. Like he was able to tap into the moon or other nearby planets to see like what was happening somehow psychically. What's popping on the moon today? <laughs> so he claims that his remote viewing was so successful that he was contacted by the government to help aid them in better understanding and observing alien life. So Swan cooperated launching the Stargate Project, mm. which then Swan began providing as much information as he could and eventually started training others to be able to do this remote viewing as well. Now the Stargate Project eventually was terminated and declassified in 1995 after a CIA report concluded that it was never useful in any intelligent operation. Mm -hmm. So, however, Swan recalls a day that he went shopping in a local supermarket and spotted a woman. And he says the woman looked human, but his intuition was telling him that something was off. He said that he watched her for a bit. Her mannerisms were enough to tip him off that she was an alien. He said that, to the untrained eye, she wouldn't have been noticed, but because of his work, he was able to spot her. He said that he moved closer to her, wanting to see what he was able to pick up from her. As he got closer, he said that his body started to buzz as he was gaining intuitive information from her. It was then that he noticed that there were two identical men standing side by side in black suits and sunglasses, he said that the men began to stare him down, and this made him really nervous, so he left the store as quickly as he could. However, the two men followed him out and ended up cornering him in the parking lot. One of the men demanded to know if telepathic information had been exchanged between him and the woman. Swan repeatedly denied these claims, while the other man was very adamant that the woman in the supermarket was incredibly dangerous and that he should not seek any type of contact with her. Finally, the men seemed convinced and they walked away. It was after this encounter that Swan realized that these men in black were tailing aliens on Earth, protecting their identities and preventing humans from coming in contact with them, almost acting like Earth's bodyguards. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Theory number two. Okay, hit me with it. Are the men in black actually an alien race? So this theory suggests that the men in black are actually aliens that harass and threaten witnesses to keep their existence from leaking. So this explains why they're so adamant on trying to retrieve any debris saved or any evidence that's found. But this also poses the question, why the hell would aliens want to live here or visit Earth? You would think that if it was to take over our planet, they would have done so already. So some people speculate that there's something on this planet that they want, be it water, plants, viable soil, some magnetic field that helps them to charge their ships and weapons. I think that if aliens have the ability to have flying spaceships and use them to travel from planet to planet and interdimensional shit, that they probably have no use for whatever we have. But another theory states that the reason why aliens come to Earth is to actually save their race. So for one reason or another, aliens can't breed or they need to continue their species somehow. And that they're experimenting on different alien hybrids to try to further advance their genes, which I think would be a more likely theory. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it would make sense if the MIBs were aliens because also reports of them seem very alien-like. They're pale complexions, no hair, large eyes, no lips. It could make sense that when aliens are accidentally seen, they send some of them down to do like recon to mm -hmm. find out like who saw them and then try to silence them and scare them. 
But some people argue that if aliens are so smart, how come we see them? Shouldn't they be smart enough to hide? Okay, that's true. But aliens can have their off days too. You know, what if they're just flying to Earth to explore some shit and check on how we're doing, and then they realize that fucking Jeff forgot to enable the cloaking device again. God damn it, Dave. God fucking damn it, Jeff. <laughs> and then, you know, they have to go down and fix what uh, Jeff and or Dave fucked Had up. done you know. for the day. But there's also another theory that uh, these MIBs are not aliens, but rather controlled by aliens. Some people believe that they are robots created to look human, hence the very mechanical ways of speaking and acting. But to me, it's like, meh, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, why would they make the MIBs look so fucked up? Yeah, like, I would be, like, more likely to believe that it's, like, aliens wearing some sort of, like, human skin over it, kind of, like, uh, that's, mm -hmm. like, mixing with the reptile people or the, um, lizard people, yeah. But then I stumbled upon this other theory. Yes. That the MIBs are not robots, but rather reanimated corpses that they use and they're like puppeteers. Ooh. Right, so like they know that they can't come and harass us because we're gonna be like, you're a fucking alien. Mm-hmm. So they reanimate corpses and then they kinda puppeteer And then just kinda them. fuck up their eyes a little bit though. <laughs> well, so that, I mean, people say, uh, like eyewitness testimony says that they are very thin, mm-hmm. that their skin is very taut, that they have a gray complexion, and that they like, the eyes, maybe they seem large just because they're sunken in. Uh-huh. Or maybe they try to reanimate their eyes somehow because maybe the eyes have rotted out and they fuck up the eyes. There's a bunch of different theories you can get into, but some people even speculate that this is why the MIBs look more human-like than others mm-hmm. because they're using fresher corpses. Oh. Yeah. However, I do think it is worth noting, though, that when the first MIBs appeared, they literally were just regular guys. Like, no talk of gray complexions, no lack of hair, no large eyes. Mm -hmm. These features didn't appear until over time, almost like people were taking the original stories and lore and then building on that. Mm -hmm. And then once finally, um, you know, they had, like, the skin, the scare factor, then people just kind of went with it and just... Ran with it, yeah. yeah. So, and then this brings me to theory number three. Are they part of a government conspiracy to cover up alien activity? Now, this theory kind of goes along the lines with what Dan Aykroyd believes. If the general population were granted the knowledge of alien existence, all hell would break loose. And we do see a prime example of this back in 1938, there was a radio broadcast of the science fiction drama written by Orson Welles called War of the World. (laughs) World of the World. (laughs) Now, Now, this was written to be presented as a breaking news report about alien invasion. And most people loved the drama and found it fun and entertaining. Mm -hmm. However... There were a lot of people who didn't get the memo that it was a fictional drama. Yeah. And and they thought that the program was an actual news reporting detailing an invasion from Mars. (laughs) And needless to say, they panicked. Like, literally, people fled their homes. There were stampedes. There were riots. And several people actually even died in the chaos. A lot of ufologists believe that the government is working with aliens and that in exchange for knowledge of like their weapons and space travel and different intel, we provide them with something, whether it's a place to live, water, plants, unknowing and unwilling humans, you know, whatever it is you think, mm-hmm. which it does have some credibility behind it because if you think about it, humans were very, very primitive for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then in the 20th century, we see a huge jump in technological advancement. Maybe. Aliens. Aliens. Could it be possible that this is when we started, you know, our intergalactical space contract with aliens? 
This theory suggests that the government also has created a group like the CIA or even recruited the CIA to dress up and pretend to be these MIBs to purposely threaten and harass people to keep them quiet about what they've seen or found. That way there's not mass hysteria. Mm -hmm. Whether it's for a power grab or if they think it's just, you know, we to genuinely care about society and keeping it from the state of chaos that it could be in, who knows. The government has repeatedly denied claims of any relation to these MIBs or even denying their existence, but I also think it's worth noting that they also denied the existence of Area 51 for almost 60 years. Mm, good point. Mm-hmm. Touche. So, finally, I'm going to hit you with theory number four. Theory number four. Okay. Theory number four. Hit me with it. And this one freaks me out the most. Oh, no. This one... I'm not ready. ...gives me anxiety. Mm, gives me anxiety. Do it. Do it So, f- theory number four. We are just a simulation. Oh, and that yikes. the men I in hate black... This. I hate this so much. The men in black are part of the code that was created to keep us in line. And that if we start acting up and becoming more self-aware and knowing that there's more to this universe than we think that there is, they show up to set us straight. Some people even theorize that the aliens that we see are more like viruses to our code and that the men in black are like the antivirus that comes in and cleans it up. And the reason why they look straight out of the 50s or the 60s is because that's when the code was written. Mm. And they just haven't updated it or changed it because why fix what isn't broken? Yeah, the code might be outdated, but it's still effective. Mm-mm. And this leads me to my fucking story. Oh, God, hit me with this. Now, this, it isn't, like, super creepy or scary or anything, but it's just interesting. When I started researching and I started putting together, like, my document, like, the things I wanted to touch upon and, like, the different stories or whatever, mm-hmm. I was also listening to a couple other podcasts about, like, information on the Men in Black. And during, like, listening to podcasts, I was, like, doing other shit and all of a sudden just everything the podcast goes quiet and i'm like the fuck's going on thinking like maybe i got a phone call or something or text or whatever yeah and i walk over to my phone and the podcast is playing like the counter for like the minute counter is like going up like by the second like it's like 27 28 29 30 but nothing's coming out like no audio and I'm like what the hell so I try to like skip around like you know the little like bar I try to pull it and move it to see if like some if it maybe it was like a glitch in the podcast recording but nothing like nothing and then I backed out and I clicked on another episode from another podcast of Men in Black and it just like played no audio though is fucking weird. So then I closed my phone down and like closed out of Spotify brought it back up and clicked on the episode and then finally it started to play but it was weird too because the rest of the night i had like weird phone problems which is (laughs) not saying a lot because i have phone problems all the time because my phone is old as hell but it's just weird because a lot of people that do research on the men and black Mm -hmm. start experiencing like issues like that or like bad luck in their everyday life and that's why shelby was smart enough to not (laughs) do any of the research for this episode because it terrifies me and also i thought i was gonna make it through today without having an existential crisis but it doesn't look like that's happening anymore but i'm gonna end it here Mm. bring it all full circle we may never be able to find out if any of these conspiracy theories are real. We have no concrete evidence to prove their existence. Uh, it's more than likely that the men in black are probably just a tall tale. Or is that exactly what they want us to believe? Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. So another thing, too, that I wanted to mention is that... Uh, there's any uh, hardcore Dan Aykroyd fans out there like me and Shelby, uh, you actually, he, after 2002, like when the, his whole experience happened, he did put together a documentary film in 2005 called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. Yes. And it's literally him. It's kind of like the same thing where he just discusses different UFO cases. He shows different 
like witness testimonies and evidence and stuff like that. It's really cool. But yeah, it's called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs, which I think is funny because usually they say like the comic's name and then unplugged for like behind like a behind the scenes scenes like of of a comic stand-up or something but then here he is he's like so ufos (laughs) (laughs) this is what i truly believe i fucking love dan Aykroyd so much so you guys know where you can send your stories of your encounters with the men in black you can send us a sweet ass email at the creepy burrito at gmail.com or share on facebook instagram twitter and don't forget to write us a sweet ass review to <laughs> balance out the badass review. To balance out the badass review that we got. The sad ass. The sad ass review. Not badass. Send us a sweet ass review. And on that note, a bye Goodbye. Goodbye. This is where I'm gonna <laughs> okay. have like Ooh. music come in. Okay. Like the 90s uh, Halloween toy sounds where it's like, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's definitely not what I'm putting in. <laughs> <laughs> I just it literally just sounded like a turkey call. <laughs>